Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our podcast studio, Dr. Eric Emerson. Eric is the Director of the South Carolina Department of Archives and History here in Columbia. His current book, along with co-editor Karen Stokes, is titled Days of Destruction, Augustine Thomas Smythe and the Civil War Siege of Charleston. He is also the author of Sons of Privilege, the Charleston Light Dragoons in the Civil War, co-editor of Faith, Valor, and Devotion, the Civil War Letters of William Porche DuBose, and a Confederate Englishman, the Civil War Letters of Henry Wemis is Wemis. It's Weems. It's Weems. Okay. That's why the British pronounce Weems. It. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I was kind of wondering about that. I, sh- I guess I should have asked before That's I started. Okay. But anyway, Henry Weems Fielden, and he's also editor of Palmetto Profiles, the South Carolina Encyclopedia Guide to the South Carolina Hall of Fame. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Curtis. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So tell our listeners a little bit about your educational background and maybe how you first got interested in writing. Well, I. I was interested in history from a really young age, but I majored in history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and then I received my master's and PhD in history from the University of Alabama. And I really didn't write very much in history until uh, in my undergrad and and Mm -hmm. in grad school, and then, um, uh, you know, it's really, (laughs) it's part of the process, a part of the program, so you have to write a lot in grad school, and uh, I don't think I was a very good writer before grad Mm -hmm. school, and uh, but going through that kind of um, process, you, you become a much better writer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are certain things that I, I wrote when I was in grad school that um, I've since had published. And, of course, your dissertation, that mm-hmm. Sons of Privilege, became um, a book that the University of South Carolina Press published. Was, and that was from your dissertation? That's from my dissertation. Oh, okay. It was adapted right. from my dissertation. So um, I really enjoy it. I don't feel like I get enough time to write anymore, mm-hmm. but, but I, I do enjoy writing. And your, um, I think most most all of your publications, they incorporate a lot of this these primary resources. So, um, like for instance, in Days of Destruction, it's a lot of letters. They're original letters. So right. how do you, how did you get started doing that? You know, like like using these primary documents. Sure. Um, well, so I was. Um I was ABD. Uh, I finished everything but my dissertation at the University of Alabama, and um, I was employed by the South Carolina Historical Society. I got a job there as editor of the South Carolina Historical Magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I had to change the topic and the focus of my dissertation, and I had to start focusing on primary source material that I could find nearby. So at at South Carolina Historical Society, at the South Carolina Library at USC, Mm -hmm. places like that. And um, so I, as I was researching uh, what would become my uh, dissertation and, and Sons of Privilege of the Charleston Light Dragoons, I was coming across these great manuscript collections mm-hmm. at the South Carolina Historical Society. And there were three in particular that I remembered after I published my dissertation. And um, my co-editor on this project, Karen Stokes, and I would talk about these great collections of letters. And I'm not sure if she suggested it or I did, but, but um, one collection of letters came from the Charleston Library. Dr. Nicholas Butler there uh, found them, and, and he, the city of Charleston needed the engineer's notebooks that SEHS had, mm-hmm. and he was willing to trade this this treasure trove mm. of private correspondence from uh, William Perche DuBose wow. for the engineer's notebooks. And and I, so we looked at the engineer's notebooks, and we really couldn't make head or tail of it because mm-hmm. it was just 
um, lots of numbers. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that was a fair trade. And when we started looking at the letters, we thought, this is great. So Karen and I decided to edit those letters for publication. That became the first of three volumes that we edited for the South Carolina Historical Society. Wow. Through USC Press. Okay. And have you mostly worked with USC Press? Almost exclusively for, okay. for the books that I've published. I always felt it was because I was either employed by the South Carolina Historical Society or mm-hmm. my current position at the Department of Archives and History. I always felt kind of a, a loyalty to, to South Carolina sure. and, and, and to that university press in particular. And mm-hmm. so everything that I've published other than magazine articles has been through USC Press. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about um, why you and Karen decided to put Days of Destruction together. How did you come across the um, the letters of Augustine Thomas Smythe? I love saying that name, Augustine. You don't see that nowadays. No, you really don't. Um, <laughs> I wonder if he went by Gus. He did. He <laughs> did, did he go really? by Gus, okay. yes. In fact, I, I refer to him in Gus and um, in my presentations about him. So we thought these were great letters, and these were, um, we had actually tried to find other historians to edit these. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had finished um, Faith, Fowler, and Devotion, which were the the William Porsche DeBose letters, and then the Henry Weems Fielding letters, um, a Confederate Englishman, we'd found those two. But these were really great, and we, we never could find anybody to edit them. And Karen really wanted to do a third project. And mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest, I was kind of hesitant about it because the, the two projects that we had done before had taken a great deal of time. It's a lot of work. It is, a, a great deal of work. And uh, But she kept prodding, prodding, and, and finally I agreed to do it. And uh, so we, we went ahead with it. Um, they are wonderful letters, and it's, it's, it's great correspondence. It gives great insight into various aspects of of the war in Charleston, its impact on Charleston, and um, that, that you wouldn't see in other letters. I, mm-hmm. I thought they were excellent. And were the, did all the letters come from one place, or were they in different locations? No, they were all the South Carolina Historical Society. Okay. And so um, that was the benefit. All, all the letters that we, that we did in those three volumes were all at uh, the South Carolina Historical Society. Okay. Um, so we didn't have to go far afoot for That's them. good. That's yeah. good. Um, how did you, I, I tend to always like this because there's usually a story behind it, but how did you come up with the title Days of Destruction? <laughs> so so everything when you have a co-editor or a co-author, everything's, you know, negotiation and everything is, uh, um, well, everything's compromise. Mm-hmm. And uh, Karen wanted the title Days of Destruction mm-hmm. and I wanted something else. Um, because he had some great quotes about being in the steeple at St. Michael's Church, and mm-hmm. I wanted to use something specifically related to St. Michael's Church. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but you know, she did a great deal of work and had done, you know, worked really, really hard and diligently over the two previous projects. And I said, fine, that's that's <laughs> okay. It'll be days of destruction. I'll we acquiesce. Can, can that. That's right. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about Augustine Smythe. What was um, what was his background like, and and what was his involvement in the the Civil War? Well, so he's he's the son of a really prominent Presbyterian minister, uh, who was uh, the, the minister of Second Presbyterian Church in mm-hmm. Charleston, which was the church for really Ulster Irishmen. It was really oh. the church for for Northern Irish who came to Charleston, where where the first first Presbyterian church is called First Scots. So oh. Scottish people established okay. that church. So he was the son of of uh, a really prominent Presbyterian clergyman, and uh, his mother um, was the daughter of a very wealthy. Um, shipping magnate out of Charleston, who was an adger, or who was James Adger, and his mm-hmm. uh, he owned a series of um, steamships and and was quite wealthy and a big um, 
supporter of Second Presbyterian Church, and he was called to the church. Uh, Thomas Smythe, his father, was called to the church and um, took a position there and married the eldest daughter of Adger, and then um, so Gus Smythe, who the, the letters are primarily about, was the second son of six children, who, mm, okay. uh, the second oldest of six children that the Smythes had. Um, so he's raised in a very religious household, um, and but he's coming of age at the time when all of these forces in South Carolina and in the nation are coming to a head that would mm. eventually lead to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, for example, his father gives the opening uh, prayer at the Democratic Convention in 1860 in Charleston. Mm. And uh, he had become politically inclined, Gus had, and so he, he wanted to be there, but only women were allowed in the balcony at Institute Hall mm-hmm. where it was held uh, because they thought men would be raucous and boisterous <laughs> during, this, during this convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he dressed up in one of his aunt's dresses. He had kind of a, a very boyish or girlish face anyways, uh-huh. and, and he was very thin, and, and uh, one of his, <laughs> his sisters talked about this, wrote about this later. He dressed up just so he could be there and, and, and listen to the, the, the convention. Um, and then he's there when the Ordinance of Secession is signed on December 20th, 1860. Okay. And um, in fact, he, he slid down one of the poles right at the end of the, the convention, and before could, anybody could take things off the stage, he had taken a um, a part of a palmetto and a pen, and, and <laughs> so he's taking souvenirs from this this kind of important event. Um, so at the time he's at South Carolina College, mm-hmm. and he, um, as war's approaching, he joins a militia camp company of uh, cadets at South Carolina College, much to the chagrin of his folks who know that these are just all college kids and they're mm-hmm. really not a, a real military unit. Uh, and he's on Sullivan's Island during the bombardment. He's he's mobilized. The governor mobilizes the militia. He's on Sullivan's Island during the bombardment of Fort Sumter. Uh, and then afterwards, he goes back to South Carolina College and uh, ends up joining the Washington Light Infantry, which is a really old uh, militia company in Charleston, you know, okay. kind of very wealthy families and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sees his first combat in, uh, at Secessionville in 1862 uh, and is just completely traumatized by it. And that was what's now James Island? That's correct. Okay. It's on, yeah, it's on, on James Island. And he's really traumatized by the combat. And so he asked for a posting somewhere else, and he gets assigned to the Confederate Signal Corps, hmm. which is a, a branch that very few people talk about, very few people know about. Yeah, when I was looking through just the introductory information, I th- I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it's it's uh, so so signals and the Signal Corps were relatively new branch in the 1850s of the U.S. Army. It was it was a way to find some way to communicate troops communicate in open spaces in the open field mm-hmm. without having to send couriers because that had traditionally been it. You know, you'd have staff officers if you're a general, mm-hmm. and if you wanted somebody to move, you'd send one of your staff to go tell that person to move. Right. But with signalmen, you could devise a, a way that where you could use flags on long poles and. Mm-hmm. and Based upon the way they were waving, you could give instructions about how to move troops and, okay. and what was going on. So that was fairly new in the U.S. Army at the time, but the Confederates picked it up. And uh, there are 50 signalmen and uh, Confederate signalmen in Charleston by 1862, and okay. he joins the Signal Corps. And he, he lives this really kind of different life as a soldier. He's, he stays in his family's house mm-hmm. at number 12 Meeting Street. Mm-hmm. He lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just walks to work, and, and he either walks to the, the bathhouse, which was on Ashley River, mm-hmm. where the Signal Corps was based out of, or okay. he, would, he would serve on the Palmetto State, or sometimes he was at Fort Sumter, but the majority of his time later on was spent in the, the steeple of St. Michael's Church, which was a, a signal post. Wow. And it also was, was the aiming stake for all federal artillery on 
more silent. So everyone's aiming for your post mm-hmm. uh, where you're stationed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so all the shells are going to the right or left of St. Michael's as they, oh, as they plunge into the city. <laughs> so And when he was off duty, he would walk down, you know, come out of the steeple and walk home and have dinner and you know, come back the next day as though you know isn't that something uh, yeah i think when i think when i think of signal corps i think of you know the navy when they're on the ships and they have the lights flashing right but this was all flags or well no at night they would use lanterns so okay. there was a way to communicate with lanterns at night um there were signal posts all around charleston harbor the, ba- the bathhouse uh at white point garden was the center of all that and so they would communicate with each other all around the harbor uh, with these flags and these mm-hmm. lanterns and they would pass messages to each other. And uh, from his posts, they would pass messages of where shells were landing in the city. They would, they would signal that you know, impact was here or there. Mm. And, uh, and surprisingly enough, federal troops or U.S. troops and federal troops are using the same signals. Mm. So they can interpret what's going on by, by, by basically uh, deciphering other people's signals. So okay. uh, it, was, it was really valuable to the Confederacy that they could interpret federal signals um, because every time the federal troops or, or the Navy was going to do something mm-hmm. in regards to the siege of Charleston, they'd know it was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and he even, at one point in uh, 1863, uh, they actually developed a code. The, the U.S. troops developed a code. And uh, shortly thereafter, the Confederates capture people who know that code. Mm. And so they, they've deciphered it. And, uh, and until 1864, they had their code. And so every time they went to do something, they'd know exactly what they were going to do. Wow. That's amazing. And these stations would, would go all the way from Charleston for Morris Island, for federal troops from Morris Island, all the way to Beaufort. Mm-hmm. You'd have stations all along the islands. Okay. And so the Confederates would establish a station somewhere between two of their posts. And this, there was a place called Hallover Cut on Johns Island, and they would set up a station there. And so every time a signal would come from Hilton Head or Beaufort, mm-hmm. they would intercept that signal and then send it back to signal post in Charleston and know exactly what the federal troops were getting ready to do. That's amazing. Yeah. You just think of, you know, today's technology and how we communicate, and you think about how they were, you know, using their own technology to yep. get things done. Absolutely. Um, what was his life like after the war? Well, so he lives, um, all three of the, the men whose letters we, we edited uh, live these kind of extraordinary lives after the war. Mm-hmm. So, so William Porsche de Beauze becomes this really important Episcopal theologian. Uh, Henry Wimsfield becomes a polar explorer. And um, Gus Smythe becomes a really large businessman. And, mm-hmm. and he uh, helps develop textiles in the upstate. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of his business concerns are in the upstate with his brother. Um, he's um, a state senator for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very prominent attorney in Charleston. Uh, he marries a, a very, um, a very intelligent and very uh, well-educated woman, uh, Louisa McCord, who lived in the McCord House just off of campus at USC, which okay. is probably you know, 100 yards from here. Yeah, You'll probably see it from the parking lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, together they live a, a really good life after the war. Hmm. Really is amazing. Um, you know, just through the letters, uh, and and we don't have that today. You know, I mean, we could, you know download people's emails and and get information but the you know the the art of letter writing is pretty much gone absolutely yeah uh, which is unfortunate it's going to make it difficult for you know a hundred years from now historians and researchers how are they going to come across <laughs> that's that's an excellent point and even even the emails that we leave and and the um 
the, the messages we leave. I mean, there's there's no real content or substance of those mm-hmm. as, as letters would have had. You mm-hmm. know, everything's really kind of sh- short and terse mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and emojis. I mean, mm-hmm. what, uh, what, oh, what I do you derive from that? What yeah, do you, exactly. Uh, I, I, yeah, I saw something, uh, some image going around social media that compared uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs to our emojis that we have now. <laughs> you know, so it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, tell us a little bit about what your writing process is like on a book like this. Um, do you, you know, first just discover the letters and deem them, you know, worthy of, of you know, actually editing a whole uh, compilation or um, what, how do you go about deciding what to do? Well, so with, with these letters, these, these series of letters, where we become aware of, of letters, and then um, the, the letters are transcribed because they, they're all in manuscript form. Mm. Uh, and Karen, uh, Karen Stokes, deserves all the credit for that. She transcribed all these collections. Wow, and that's so great. She, and it takes a great deal of patience mm-hmm. and time to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and so we have to transcribe the letters, and then it was my job to annotate them once we had them transcribed. So we would pick out people in the letters, and so you're annotating who, the, when it, someone's being in, mentioned by just one name or some events being mentioned, you have to annotate that in the bottom and footnotes so people can get a, get context for what's mm-hmm. going on in the mm-hmm. letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get it in some sort of form like that. You know, you've, you've got footnotes with it, and and then we would pitch it to USC Press, and USC Press was, was kind enough to, to publish all three volumes. Um, but it's, it's a long process from the time you start transcribing letters to the time it's ready to go to the publisher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, I, we would collaborate on some sort of introduction to give some kind of larger context for what people are getting ready to read mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's a it, it's it's a lot of work and it, it's uh, unlike just writing doing a manuscript or doing a, a monograph of some mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it's a far more laborious process and when you're working with letters you don't correct them I mean you want them in their original form as they're being transcribed but do you point out errors or anything well in the front you, you will point out what what you've done with those letters so if there's if there's inconsistencies you'll say what what you've done with those inconsistencies if there's if there are things you can't make out or mm-hmm. if you um, you know do you correct spellings misspelled words do you put SP or do you, something like that but mm-hmm. you spell all that out in the beginning of the the book so that people will understand mm-hmm. why you've chosen to do certain things with those letters. Mm-hmm. And and as far as, as editing, how do you bridge the gaps between letters? How Do you have to do research outside of uh, just the letters themselves? Uh, absolutely, right. You have to, I mean, if you you have to understand the context, and so you might have to, they, they might be referring to an event you've never heard of, mm-hmm. that you have no, no background with, and suddenly you have to start uh, doing research about that event or that place um, to to be able to annotate those letters or provide context or mention it in the introduction. And can you easily go off on a tangent? <laughs> you can, you f- but you find some really fascinating things by by trying to provide context. And and you you can go down a rabbit hole. You mm-hmm. can just completely. You can lose a lot of time doing that. I can imagine you come across something fascinating and you want to personally know more, but then you also want to be able to bridge it to, you know, the the writing that you're having to do. Absolutely. And and then you'll find things that, you know, either Karen or I would find things and, and say, well, oh, you know, I've got to incorporate this in the foot. And, and you want to tell this story. Mm-hmm. but. But how much can you tell? You know, how right. how much do you want to distract the reader from what's actually going on in the letters by trying to tell this wider story of something really neat that you found? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and that there's a lot of debate about things like that. Oh, we sure. go back and forth about you know, <laughs> I you know, I don't include this or I, I do want to include that. Uh -huh. So, uh, is there um, uh, one particular letter that that stands out above the rest? Wow, um, some of them are, are are kind of you can see emotion in some letters better than the others. I think the letters Smythe's letters to his aunts right after the Battle of uh, Secessionville. You can tell it's it's a it's really, you know, seeing combat up close, seeing mm -hmm. death up close has really had a big impact on him. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, I I like those letters. There are two of them. And then there's one letter that I put in the introduction. I start the book out with, and he's complaining to to one of his aunts. He's really kind of whining, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. And what he's saying is, you know, I, I here I am. I'm this. You know, he just turned. I, I can't remember his age at the time. I'm not sure if it was 21 or whatever. But but he um, just had a milestone birthday, mm -hmm. and he feels like none of his ambitions in regards to the war are coming true. Mm -hmm. It's May 1864. Mm -hmm. And there's about to be this bloodbath from these old Charleston families in, in Virginia. Mm -hmm. All these, these units have gone north from Charleston. They've been stationed in the Low Country all the time with really prominent young sons, like the Charleston Light Dragoons. All these men have gone north, and they're about to be – uh, in, they're about to engage in battle that will be very costly to those units. And here's someone who, you know, sleeps in his own house every night. You right. Know? <laughs> he's got a really yeah, cushy yeah, life. Got, yeah, a really good life. And, and he's complaining because he doesn't think he'll ever be promoted or he doesn't think he'll ever get to do anything worthwhile mm -hmm. in the war. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, that's, that was always kind of, that kind of struck me. It's, it's naive, kind of youthful naivete and, mm -hmm. and uh, ambition all rolled into one there. Hmm. Uh, and a little and a little pity party too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's really fascinating. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move on real quickly. One of the things that I always like to ask our guests, since this is Library Voices SC, is um, are you a big library user? Obviously, doing the research, you have to be. But um, you have any interesting library stories that <laughs> come well, to your mind? I do. I, I was thinking uh, recently about um, I was I was a really very active reader at a young age, but I was reading things that I found around the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can remember the first day I went into uh, a library at, at my elementary school, you'd have an orientation, right? Mm -hmm. So you'd have the mm -hmm. school librarian in there. And I can remember me standing around with four or five other small small boys. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we all had our hands in our pockets and mm -hmm. we listened to them tell us, you know, where everything is and how to use everything. And then, you know, so she kind of said, all right, now go have fun. And and I remember the, the girls that were with us kind of branched out and started looking around. And mm -hmm. there were four or five of us just sitting there. We just had our hands in our pockets just looking <laughs> at each other. <laughs> like, what do we do yeah, now? Absolutely. <laughs> we didn't know what to do. And, uh, and she just – she would have none of it. So <laughs> she said, all right, you four, come with me. And she, she dragged us across the, the library to, uh, to the biography section. And she started mm -hmm. pulling out these biographies of uh, like uh, – um, Daniel Boone or mm -hmm. Davy Crockett, you know, mm -hmm. like with, at the same time that, that Davy Crockett's appearing on TV, you know, in, in those series, yep. you, you know, suddenly these these kind of biographies with these larger than life characters and, and started showing us these books. And, mm -hmm. and uh, we became uh, very interested quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that was the first time I really started using a library and, uh, and came to appreciate it. And it had much to do with one woman's, you know, impatience with us just standing in the middle <laughs> of the library with our hands in our pockets. So... Uh, isn't it great the kind of the, a lot of people you know have a really important first memory of libraries uh, and um, it always runs the gamut but you know it it 
you get a good mental image because I can just picture her probably looking like a traditional librarian should and, you know, making sure that you guys got familiar with what you needed to know. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, so what are you currently working on or do you have any other plans with your writing? Uh, any projects? Well, I've got three or four projects that I should be working on that I'm not. Um, and, and that's kind of the nature of it. You, you think like, well, wouldn't it be great to work on this? And you start on it and then you get distracted and, mm-hmm. and you start on and then you find something else and you get distracted. Right. So, um, But I, 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 at work, I'm actually chairing the state flag study committee, oh. and so which is something that, that's come up in the last several months. And so that's taken a certain amount of my time. But it's been really interesting because I've had a chance uh, to, to investigate the origins of the state flag and, and not just from the things that we have in archives and history, but mm-hmm. but to find, you know, artifacts and uh, uh, things that will help us in our work and, and things I never knew about. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a flag of the second South Carolina that I didn't knew existed until um, uh, this process started that wow. we're, we're using for our work. So uh, um, that's a lot of fun. That's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Hopefully I'll get a chance to write all that up sometime in the near future. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a mystery, you know. And you're un, you're uncovering uh, at every part of your research another piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very neat. Well, um, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. Until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.